0: Thank you for joining us for this chapel message from the campus of Columbia International University in Columbia, South Carolina. Our mission at CIU is to educate people from a biblical worldview to impact the nations with the message of Christ. Okay, are we on? Sounds like it. All right, it's great to be back with you here this morning for part two, the how we got the Bible talk. Yesterday we talked about how Uh, A select number of books wound up in our Bible, right, particularly our Old Testament. Is it ringing me or is it just my ears? Okay. (laughs) And uh, sorry. Um, Feedback. So um, great to be here with you. It was great to be in the dining hall with some of you last night. Uh, I could tell folks were interested and definitely taking notes and formulating questions Uh, I talked with a few of you, I think, for a good 30 minutes or so. That was uh, a delight to me. Uh, We will be at lunch, my wife Annie and I, so uh, feel free to join us there to chat uh, about our lives, about whatever we're talking about here on Authority of Scripture Week. Um, We can even talk about sports and the humidity in Columbia and how much I love that. (laughs) All right, all right. So how we got our Bible. We're going to be back to the same question that I asked yesterday. Should the Bible's history cause us to doubt its authority? Okay, that's that's the big question. I'm going to come back tomorrow morning when we wrap this up, and I'm going to answer that very definitively, okay? But we need these two talks first. The quick answer, again, is that the Bible's history should actually cause us to appreciate its authority more, as well as inspire us to read it and study it more intently, as well as preach it and teach it with confidence. But not everybody agrees. What are other people saying? Well, I don't know if you can see this. This was an article found in Newsweek a few years ago called, The Bible So Misunderstood It's a Sin. Yikes, okay. So here it goes. No television preacher has ever read the Bible. Now, I might agree with Kurt on this. Yeah. I don't know when the last time is you've watched a TBN or, or uh, television preacher. They probably haven't read the Bible. Okay, fair enough. But at best, Kurt Eichenwald says, at best, we've all read a bad translation. Wow. A translation of translations of translations of hand-copied copies of copies, of copies of copies, and on and on, hundreds of times. Now, Dr. Noonan and I did not plan this, that we did this telephone game here. This was totally providential. He did the, pro, he did the, he did the telephone game. In a matter of five minutes, what we have? Five transmitters, six transmitters, I guess, if we count Dr. Tim there at the beginning. And we didn't come up with a message at all, right? See, Kurt's playing on that, isn't he? He's trading on this telephone game, isn't he here? Except, he's a little more honest, and he talks about hand-copied copies of copies. And yet, we're supposed to come to the same conclusion that no one has ever read the Bible because the Bible comes to us through many, many manuscripts. You see, that's the problem. Another scholar, Dr. Michael Law, puts it this way, we have seen repeatedly that the Septuagint, we'll talk about that in a minute, that the Septuagint, and especially the Dead Sea Scrolls, offer proof that the Hebrew Bible was not fixed before the second century CE or or AD. Okay. That would mean that the text was fluid, you see. So there there are two issues here. We've got... Um, was there a fixed text before the second century A.D.? I'm talking about the Old Testament text. Was it fixed or was it still fluid? That is, copies uh, of all kinds, all stripes. Could we ever go back to anything called the original word of God? That's what's at stake here. Second, were ancient readers and scribes of the Bible bothered by the state of disrepair of their copies? I want to answer that question kind of along the way. A little note here about textual criticism, Now that phrase is a little unfortunate. What we mean by that is just deep scholarly study of the Bible, okay, and its manuscripts. Criticism is a bit of an unfortunate term. Uh, it's one that was chosen centuries ago, unfortunately. But textual criticism just means the scientific scholarly study of the Bible according to its earliest manuscripts, okay, that's, that's all we're getting at here. But we need this study, we need this discipline, because all of the originals are lost. Yeah. We can't go back to the copy, say, of the gospel according to Matthew, that when he, you know, finished and put the pen down, that copy doesn't exist. That text doesn't exist. But we have copies of the gospel according to Matthew that we wrestle with. Second, copying by hand is hard, so the telephone game was really hard, but you should try copying by hand sometime if you haven't already. Here I am talking to a generation that looks, it just uses tablets and things, you know, uh, and phones, but, but, but you should try copying something out by hand just to see how difficult it is, and you'll make silly mistakes without even knowing it. And to make matters a bit more complicated, the, sur- the surviving copies don't all agree, okay? That would be nice if all surviving copies agreed, but they don't. The last point is a bit theological, but one that I think we need to wrestle with. We hold that God-inspired authors, right, of these books, not necessarily the scribes, okay? Now, I'm going to come back and talk more about that tomorrow morning. What do we do theologically with scribes that make mistakes, okay? We need to talk about that. But textual criticism is necessary because God does not ensure the preservation of his word in the same way that he gave the creative word itself. Okay, there's a difference there. And we'll have to come back and discuss that. Now, what's the evidence for our Hebrew Bible, our Old Testament? By the way, I don't know, the last stat I heard, Dr. Noonan can correct me if he wants, but I heard that 77% of our Bible is the Old Testament. Something like 77%. Yeah. So I'm going to focus on it. Uh, I, won't, I won't repeat it, but an old professor of mine from here, I won't, I, say, I won't say his name. I'm going to repeat what he said. But an old professor of mine from here talked about the New Testament as the appendix to the, to the Bible, which was the Old Testament. Yeah. I know. I know. I know. I know. I know. <laughs> Let's talk about that over lunch. I think that'll be good. That'll be good. All right. So, so what do we have for our evidence here then, our material manuscript evidence? We've got, right, the famous Dead Sea Scrolls, okay, and we're going to say a lot about those in just a little bit, so I'm going to kind of go quickly, but basically the manuscripts date from the 3rd century BC to about the 2nd century AD, okay, that's our date range for Dead Sea Scroll manuscripts. Then a little bit of uh, of a, a, well, not a little bit, a very unknown tradition to most of us would be the Samaritan Pentateuch. And uh, and its manuscripts go back only as far as the 10th century to the 14th century AD. But we know that just because the manuscripts date to to so late doesn't mean that the tradition of its text is that late. Does that make sense? In other words, we know there were Samaritans around, say, by John chapter 4. Jesus meets one, right? At the well. Yeah. And as would have it, right, she gets on to the topic of religion, right, with Jesus. Yeah. And uh, she says, you Jews say that we must worship in Jerusalem. Right? These are, these are fighting words here. Where do you worship the one God, right? And Jesus says, to her, and she says, you, got, you Jews say we should worship in Jerusalem, but we, Samaritans, say we should worship on this mountain. And by that, she means Mount Gerizim. Because in her Bible at that time, Deuteronomy 27, verse 4, talked about building the altar not on Mount Ebal, like in your Bible, but on Mount Gerizim, in her Bible. See, textual differences have massive theological implications, right? John 4 can't really be read well unless you know that little detail. Otherwise, it's very difficult to know where the woman is getting that information from. But she actually is getting that from a well-known tradition, a textual tradition, that probably went back to the second century B.C., well before the time of Jesus. So that's what makes that conversation pretty spicy. Now, (laughs) the Masoretic Text. The Masoretic Text, I'll say much more about it here in a minute. The Masoretic text, again, its manuscripts date from the 9th century to the 11th century AD. I mean, really to the 15th, but but the main core of manuscripts is from the 9th to 11th. And uh, again, just because the manuscripts are late doesn't mean the tradition is late. The text tradition is much earlier, as we'll see. A quick word about ancient versions or ancient translations. The Greek Septuagint was probably done in the 3rd century B.C. for the the law, the Torah, and then the rest of it done by, say, the middle of the 1st century B.C. All of the Greek translations from Hebrew uh, into Greek done during that time period. The earliest manuscripts are pretty close to, say, the 2nd century A.D., and the fullest manuscripts that we have are from the 4th century A.D., so pretty close. Now, as all translations go, Not everyone, especially a generation or two later, is happy with the original translation. How many of you use, say, something like the ESV? Yeah, a good number of you. And do you know that that's basically a revision of the RSV? You say, yeah. And the RSV, of course, goes back and is one of the earliest revisions of the KJV, right? Okay, these sorts of revisions... Uh, happened in our own English Bible tradition. But they also happened during the time leading up to Jesus and beyond. The Jews were not always happy with the Greek translations in the Septuagint, and so they would actually revise them. And, uh, and in very interesting ways. But I, I'll try to refrain from going into too many examples. But the 2nd um, the the, 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 the and 3rd century church father origin... He was, uh, he was fed up. Jews and Christians were constantly debating about who had the word of God, who had the text... Right? It's kind of like, I just remember old dorm room experiences here, where it was like, my NASB is better than your NIV, you know? because none of us knew Greek, none of us knew Hebrew in, the, in our freshman year, and we just kind of went back and forth debating about which Bible version was right, and none of us could get to the bottom of it, you know what I mean? That's kind of like what was going on in the 2nd and 3rd centuries A.D. Jews and Christians were going at it, and they really couldn't access the original texts. Well, a church father named Origen came along, And said, this is a bad state of affairs. And Origen created what is called the hexapla, or the six-columned Bible. And he put all of the major versions, or or Greek versions, in one text. So that word by word, scholars could compare and contrast readings between Jews and Christians. These, These versions are really, really important. I don't want to get political here, but this is an interesting quote. If you know John MacArthur, you know that this is good rhetoric on his part. Okay. But I like, I like Dr. John on a lot of things, but I wish Dr. John knew a little bit more about textual criticism. Okay. Because he, he said this, I think, last year at the G3 conference. He says, Scripture says, Oh, my people, their oppressors are children, and women rule over them. That's a direct quote out of the ESV from Isaiah 3, verse 12. Then he says, And God has given us a woman as vice president and a child is president. Now, that's the part I want to ignore. Okay. But interesting, that reading, though, of, of Isaiah 312 actually influences his, his politics, his theology. But let's go, back, let's go back a ways to the 10th century AD. This is a, this is a segment of a Greek manuscript. Okay, And uh, instead of women, what's interesting is the, the Greek Septuagint has the word for creditors, lenders. And lenders will rule over them, you see. And all, out in the margin here, there's actually two Greek words, going back to those Jewish revisers. There's a word for women, so one Jewish reviser was still reading women, and then there's another Greek word for creditors again. And so instead of reading and women rule over them, like it probably is in most of our English versions, there's actually really good evidence that creditors is the original reading, you see. Creditors rule over God's people as oppressors, you see. And that actually sheds a whole lot of light on how in chapter 5 of Isaiah, they are being um, uh, judged for adding house to house and field to field, right? One of the ways that they would be doing that would possibly be through crediting, you see. Lending and then charging too much in interest, et cetera, et cetera. So these ancient Greek versions actually shed light on the history of the text and sometimes offer really, really interesting variants. A couple other versions, the Latin Vulgate and the Syriac Peshitta. I'm just going to talk about the Vulgate for a second. Is Professor Berenzi in the room today? No, I was hoping he would be. I I wanted him to see this part. This part right here. Yeah, yeah. So, Professor Berenzi taught me about Michelangelo's Moses many years ago, but we, we didn't talk about the horns many years ago. And once you see these horns on Moses, you can't forget them. You just can't unsee that. And what you realize is that Michelangelo is not the first to do this. All through, middle, all through the Middle Ages, All of the art representations of Moses have horns. Some of them very, very um, exaggerated. It's incredible. So where do the horns come from? On something as prominent as Michelangelo's Moses. Right? Our ESV has Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone. Yeah. But that's not the version Michelangelo was reading. Or listening to. No, he would have read something like this. And he was ignorant that his face was horned. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, I don't have time to get into that. That's not a textual problem so much. As a, as a, as a translational issue, Jerome translated the Hebrew here quite literally. I'm noting that mo, mo, when Moses would come down the mountain in Exodus 33 and 34, that his face was horned, and that affected all of our art representations of Moses, you see, in the Western world. It's fascinating. All right, now, the early evidence for the proto-Masoretic text. So the Masoretic text, that's the text our English Old Testaments are based on, okay, primarily. Uh, Maybe with some some different uh, decisions here or there, but basically, the proto-Masoretic text is the text that our English Old Testaments are based on. So we should know something about that, Now, this is not proto-Masoretic text, but it's important to point out this is the earliest artifact with anything biblical on it, okay? And note, it only goes back to the 7th or 6th century BC. This is basically a rendering of the Aaronic blessing from Numbers 6, 24, and 25, right? May he or she be blessed by Yahweh, the warrior and and the rebuker of evil. May Yahweh bless you, keep you. May Yahweh make his face shine upon you and grant you peace. These are silver amulets, like little jewelry that someone would wear around their neck, right? Bringing the blessing of the high priest Aaron with them wherever they go. So that's the earliest for anything biblical, not necessarily Masoretic or anything, just that's the earliest piece of evidence we have for the biblical text on these tiny silver amulets. But what we have here is kind of the first proof positive of the biblical text found in all of these sites along the Dead Sea. Here's Jerusalem, Jericho, the fortress at Masada, all of these caves along the west side of the Dead Sea yielded evidence of the Bible. Yielded a lot of evidence of the Hebrew language and other languages as well, but, but yielded evidence of the Bible. In fact, there were 20-something biblical scrolls from all of these sites here outside of Qumran. And then there were some 210 biblical scrolls from Qumran, okay? And these are mixed. These did not always attest to the Masoretic text as we'll see in a moment. This is actually the the Masada fortress right here. We actually have the baths here, the synagogue over here where these manuscripts were found at Masada. The Romans created some ingenious siege works and ramparts around AD 68 and 70 uh, that that ultimately overtook and destroyed this Jewish fortress here on that southwest corner of the Dead Sea. But we can obviously go see it today. I think this is the Dead Sea here off in the background. Fascinating. This is one of the manuscripts that came from there, a, a, a part of a scroll of the Psalms from Psalms 81 to 85. So, no doubt, before this period, and even during this period, Jews are primarily copying manuscripts conservatively in temples, okay? In their temple spaces, they are doing this. We have evidence for a number of books of our Old Testament copied conservatively in this way. And we find those mainly at those other sites outside of Qumran. Now, the Dead Sea, or the the Qumran Caves... These yielded up around 210 biblical manuscripts. I mean, it's important to... Let me just go back and just say something real quick. Before these Dead Sea Scrolls that were discovered almost 75 years ago, before these, our earliest Hebrew manuscripts came from the 9th century AD. Yeah. Now we, we can get back 1,000 years, Right? into the text history of the Old Testament by the use of these Dead Sea Scrolls. But we've only known about them for 75 years, right? The very study of the Dead Sea Scrolls is in its infancy right now. Some of the first editions weren't even published until after the year 2000, right? So, so so much to explore here, actually. So much to research when it comes to the text contained in the Dead Sea Scrolls. All right. How many manuscripts are there for this Masoretic text tradition? Interestingly, no one knows for sure. No one knows for sure. Manuscripts are found in university libraries, national archives and libraries, and of course caves like we saw at Qumran. So so no one actually knows for sure when it comes to how many Hebrew manuscripts there are. We do know some 24,000 biblical fragments were found at an old synagogue in Cairo. That number, though, just pretty much finally came to light. Okay? We know that there are some 11,000 records of manuscripts and remains of manuscripts in the National Library of Israel. So with these, we could get to something like 35,000 manuscripts and fragmentary remains from the 15th century AD and backwards. How many have heard that the New Testament has the most manuscript evidence for it out of any book from antiquity? Yep, lots of hands, lots of hands. Yeah, and uh, it's just not quite right. I think, I think there's another sense in which the New Testament is well attested. I think it's because the manuscripts are close in date, or closer in date to when we thought, they, or when we think the books were written. But the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, is far more preserved than the New Testament in reality. From the 3rd to 8th centuries though, we only have a handful of manuscripts. This is sometimes called the silent period. I'm going to come back and talk about this Ashkar Gilson in a minute. These are all the important manuscripts up to 1100 A.D. One of them, that uh, Sassoon 1053 here, which contains most of the Old Testament, is about to go on Sotheby's auction in New York in May. Any guesses on how much that's going to go for? I heard 10 million. 50 million. Yes, they expect it to fetch 30 to 50 million dollars. I wanted to put in a bid, and then I heard that and was like, oh, that's not going to happen. <laughs> that's not going to happen. But that's a gorgeous picture. That gives you an idea, too, of just what that looks like, right? That old book, that old codex of the Hebrew text there. Contains almost the entire Hebrew Bible, and its its date is debated, sometime between the 8th century and the 10th century, which I'm leaning more towards the 10th these days. All right, the manuscript though, that is uh, most important I would say to this Masoretic tradition, the one that our Bibles truly are based on is this what we call the Leningrad Codex. So here's again just a page from Psalms 81 to 84. A little bit more fragmentary but dated a century earlier is the Aleppo Codex. I wish this image were a little better, it's not. But, but you can see here a, a hundred years earlier perhaps, the Aleppo Codex uh, preserves the same exact text. These are very detailed Masoretic notes here. These are notes talking about, you know, counting of letters, counting of words. Where are we in the book? Are we, are we halfway copied yet or not? These are incredibly meticulous notes that Jewish scribes started to employ probably around the ninth century and forward, at least. That's, that's when we see them documented, but really, they're probably being transmitted all along. Now, what can we say about the copy and quality, right? This is the whole point. Eichenwald, Kristen Swenson, I cited her yesterday, Michael Law, They have to show that the manuscripts were really treated like the telephone game in order for the rhetoric to stick. Do you follow me? Was was our Bible copied like the telephone game? Just think about that. Because that's what what these, these books, these articles in Newsweek would have us believe. Well, in fact, I'm going to show you conservative copying. They actually copied quite strictly letter for letter. But they did also copy in a freer way, and we should be aware of that. I'm going to mention that. But did the scribes care about quality control? Let's use Isaiah 40, 7 to 8 as an example. It's really ironic that I'm going to show you a pretty big textual variant in the verses that say, the word of our God stands forever. I know. It's not lost on me. It's not lost on me. All right. But here it is. Isaiah 40, 7 to 8. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of Yahweh blows upon it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. So, what happened when the Jewish scribe, around 150 BC, copied these verses? He started copying here, right? The grass withers and the flower falls... Then you would expect, right, the, the surely, right, all people are grass, right, that, that line to come, but that's not what we get. But the word of our God will remain forever. That's actually what he copied on the line. What did he do? What happened? His eyes kind of skipped, didn't it? Yeah, which is kind of like what you and I would do, too if we weren't paying truly attention, what would happen is our eye would skip all of the text in verse seven because verses seven and eight begin alike, don't they? And so our eye would go all the way to verse eight. And that's exactly what this Dead Sea Scroll scribe did. His eye skipped all the way to verse eight, all of verse seven eliminated. Now that's a careless copying mistake. That that in itself doesn't show that they would care about the quality of copying or not. What I find interesting, is that in this manuscript, all of the missing verse begins here and goes through the, lo- through the margin and down the side here. That's interesting. The missing text of verse 7 is actually added back in by the same scribe or a corrector. Do you see what I mean? See they actually do care about the text, right? They actually do want to get it right. The, the first scribe made a stupid mistake, but it's a very common one. While the, while either he or someone else caught it and actually inserts the text all the way down. That should give us confidence, actually, because that shows that they do care about the copying of the text. Now, I'm going to ask this question, too. How many have heard that when a scribe makes a mistake, they might just roll it up and throw it away? Oh, I saw some, yeah, some hands, yeah. I believe that, too, until I saw some of these pictures. And I went, oh, well, that's not what they did at all. You know, it takes something like 20 sheepskins to make enough parchment just to copy the book of Isaiah. I couldn't see them bur- or crumpling any of that up and throwing it away, you see. It's amazing. All right, I want to talk about some more conservative copying here. We could actually go up the road at Duke University Library and see this manuscript called Ashgar Gilson. Also, I believe the scroll out front has the same, has the text open to Exodus 15. What's going on here this is a, this is a fragment of a scroll from the 7th or 8th century, copying Exodus 14, and then when, when he gets to Moses' song in Exodus 15, it breaks into this elaborate layout. Here's the manuscript from 400 years later. Same thing, exact copying all the way to Exodus 15, elaborate layout. I'm from Massachusetts, this is, the, this is the time gap between us and the, and the pilgrims coming over on the Mayflower. That's how, that's how long 400 years is. When we look at these lines, what we'll see is that this is again three to 400 years of time, everything is copied exactly as it should. This is the manuscript from the 8th century, this is the manuscript from about 1008. You see, the manuscript from 1008 has to actually use these little dots here, doesn't it? just to make sure every line begins and ends the same way. Yeah, same thing down here, in here, whereas this, the, because, because the later scribe is using this, this text up here, and he notices how it, every line begins, how every line ends. Every line of these five lines must end and begin the same way. Notice the blank line here, also copied here. And then the same elaborate scheme, uh, as we saw in the, in, the, in the larger photo earlier. That's conservative copying. There are hardly any, if any, textual variants between these manuscripts that are 400 years apart. Now how about something from a bit earlier? Let's look at Psalm 82 from that Masada text again. Here's Psalm 82, the one from Asaph. Here it is in the Aleppo Codex. When we put the first few lines side by side, what we see is that in Masada they were using a break in the line here to, as a guide to the reading. The reading would pause here and then here at the end of the line. And then the reading would continue and pause and then be picked up again and then, and then pause again. Now the later manuscript doesn't represent the same system in paw- with, with the spaces, but it does represent the same pauses by using things like accents and vowels. But what's interesting is that every end of line actually corresponds with these accents. And when you look at it consistently, what it shows is that that not only was the text copied faithfully letter for letter, but it was actually read the same way over a 1,000 year period you see. That to me is fascinating. Not just the copying, but even the way in which Psalm 82 was read, we can show that there was continuity in the reading. All right, very quickly, let's look at an example of free copying. These are the manuscripts that get talked about in Newsweek, Time Magazine, and the New York Times, so I I should let you know about some of this. This is Deuteronomy 5, which contains the Ten Commandments. How dare a scribe tamper with the Ten Commandments? And yet... He does. In verse 15, everything's good. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Then this scribe inserts text from Exodus 20, verse 11. He says, to sanctify it, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day to sanctify it. Then it continues on with the next command, honor your father and your mother. That's a pretty large insertion. Here's what it looks like in the manuscript. You've got Deuteronomy 5 in this column, and then you've got this addition from Exodus 20, verse 11, right there. Now, what is interesting to me is that the scribe does bracket this edition with this word, lakathsho, or to sanctify it, in both places. This is actually an older scribal technique, which actually alerts the reader that the scribe has added text from earlier in the book. Okay, It's called repetition, a resumptive repetition, and it actually signals to the reader that the scribe has made a a large addition here. I don't know if that comforts you, but what, what I'm trying to show is that this isn't chaotic. This is not random. The scribe actually knows what he's doing and has actually signaled to us that he has made a large insertion here. In this case, Exodus 20, verse 11. 4Q Deuteronomy N, that's the Dead Sea Scroll, is close to Proto-MT. That is, its text is largely similar. But the scribe has added Exodus 20, 11, between Deuteronomy 5:15 and 16, and made other changes as well. But here's the question. Was the scribe making a new text or simply providing a liturgical text, maybe something that was read in the synagogue or in worship there? We don't know. But here's the quick conclusion. There are two complementary approaches found at Qumran at this time. There was a tendency to conservatively copy the text, letter for letter, line for line. And then there was an approach to freely copy it like we saw there. That probably is to be explained, creating text for different purposes within the community. But neither textual chaos nor randomness, but care for the text and faithfulness to the text are expressed in both modes. Again, our English Bible is based mainly on the MT, but in the footnotes to your Old Testament, you will see readings found in these other witnesses. All right, we're going to take one quick example here of how textual criticism works. How tall was Goliath? Yeah. We know Goliath as nine feet Nine inches tall, right? That was what my Sunday school curriculum had. Yeah, right? He was always portrayed, right, as this fierce nine-foot-nine giant. And there's good reason for that reading, right? That's what I'm trying to show here. Lots of different witnesses to that reading. But there are other witnesses that picture Goliath as about six-foot-nine inches or quite shorter than Shaquille O'Neal. See what I mean? Yeah, a Dead Sea Scroll that Greek translation called the Septuagint again. And even the Jewish historian Josephus reads uh, 1 Samuel 17, Goliath as shorter. So what do we do with that? Can we say it's an accidental error? Maybe, perhaps the scribe copying verse four, skip down to verse seven, anticipating 600 shekels. We don't know, I, don't, I think that's a long skip. Six cubits, right? Nine feet makes David's victory more impressive, so I could see a scribe perhaps changing a shorter Goliath to a taller one. But if he was originally six cubits, and Saul doesn't go out to meet him on the battlefield, what if a scribe changes it from six to four? That is, makes Goliath shorter. We already are told in the narrative that Saul is head and shoulders taller above his countrymen, right? In 1 Samuel 9, we're told that. So could it be that Saul, the scribe, is now putting Goliath and Saul more eye to eye, and Saul still doesn't want to go out and meet him? See, that would highlight Saul's cowardice, wouldn't it? Well, whatever the case, no theology is affected here, but I want to show you that it does affect the way we read the story. So the variant is significant, there's not a certain uh, conclusion to this one, but but it does affect the way we read the story, it doesn't really affect our overall theology. I'm gonna skip this example and I just want to conclude with that important variants need more study. Okay? Textual criticism is a discipline and a science that keeps on going. It keeps evaluating new manuscript finds and old manuscript finds. Important variants need more study. But providentially, The evidence, as varied as it is, creates a beautiful textual mosaic, one that I think we can ultimately see the providential hand of God governing. The Bible's history, I think, still causes us to appreciate its authority more. And I'm going to give Augustine the last word, and then we'll we'll be dismissed. We're back to his, well, it's a a different letter, but this is his letter to Jerome. He says this, Of these canonical books alone, do I most firmly believe that the authors were completely free from error? And if in these writings I am perplexed by anything which appears to me opposed to truth, I do not hesitate to suppose that either the manuscript is faulty, or the translator has not caught the meaning of what was said, or I myself have failed to understand it. May we be good Christian students of the word in a humble posture before the word of God as we study it as deeply as we're called to. Thanks.